Hello and welcome to Ship Talking Pod. And if you can believe it or not, guess who's back from their shore leave? Robbie, welcome back to the co-host seat. How the heck are you? Hey, Brandon. I am, and everybody else, I am doing very well. Um, I'm so happy to be back. And yeah, what a crazy couple months, you know? Uh, Riza was amazing. I took a little time. <laughs> you know, uh, George gave me this really cool little device or like doll called a Horgon. Um, <laughs> let's just say I am very excited that, you know, that was the best gift ever. Thank you, George. Uh, instead of a sorry, George, there's a thank you, George, for, for a change. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I definitely got a little upgrade from lieutenant to lieutenant commander, I guess we could yeah, say. Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, I definitely miss all of you in the community. I miss our wonderful team and I'm so excited to be back. And I'm just, you know, I had a lot of fun um, catching up and, you know, I'm happy to be back here in the, uh, you know, where, where are we at right now? We're at Deep Space Nine. So, <laughs> well, yeah, it's great to have you back. I, I had members of the community asking, like, you keep saying Robbie's on shore leave. Is that your just eventual way to say he's he's left the show? I'm like, no, he's literally on shore leave. Well, you know, obviously you've, we talked about when you were uh, when you were going off that you had that big in real life work change and all that. But, you know what? We are so, so happy to have you back. Ship talking is growing and lots of new things on the horizon and you know alongside yourself and alex george and james it's just so great to have such a stellar team it's a lot of fun and um yeah welcome back robbie we really did miss you oh thank you so much and this is such a magical team this is a great you know our mission is wonderful and i'm happy to be back and you know i never thought i'd say this but you know rice it just got a little tiring so i'm happy to be back to some work so thank you brandon (laughs) all right well everybody we have a great guest lined up for this week's episode we have dr robert hurt who is an astronomer and a lifelong science fiction and star trek fan so i'm we're really excited to have him on the guest on the show today right brandon yeah he is an astronomer for caltech he worked on the spitzer project before it sunsetted and ended its journey last year in january so we're going to be able to talk to him about some real life science behind trek we haven't been able to do that since dr aaron mcdonald was on the show so it's i'm looking forward to it i think we're gonna be able to talk to him about some cool stuff when it comes to ships specifically in terms of you know what would it actually be like living out there or what technology would actually need to exist to be able to have the ships that we see in star trek actually come to life so i think it could be a very interesting discussion and i'm i'm really curious to see as an astronomer maybe if he has any pet peeves or you know things he loves about sci-fi or does not like so i think we're all gonna have a really fun chat well we're gonna get to that discussion in just a bit but before we do let's go ahead and move into this week's community q segment For this week's Community Q, we asked all of you to let us know which species technology you thought would be the most dangerous and detrimental if assimilated and incorporated by the board. So for this one, the number one response was actually for the Iconians, and specifically the reasoning behind that was because of their gateways and how they could instantaneously appear anywhere. So uh, that would be pretty that would be pretty dangerous if assimilated by the board. I, I see where the community is going with that, and I, I absolutely agree that that technology would be just catastrophic on a scale of unbelievable Mm -hmm. level i think you know one of the things that also kind of makes me think of this is probably the spore drive that the federation created you know could probably even have a more of an impact right because it could have it could affect 
more than just planets and planetary bodies. But yeah, the Conians for sure. I imagine that if they did get their hands on a Conian gateway technology, that maybe the Federation would have to bring back their plans for the spore drive, right? They kind of abandoned mm-hmm. that with the destruction of the Glen and then the disappearance that we've come to find out of the discovery. But mm-hmm. yeah, if, if we just had Borg appearing everywhere. Now, Borg, of course, had their own transwarp gateways and stuff, but it mm-hmm. wasn't instantaneous like an Iconian gateway. So uh, definitely would be quite a scary thought. Uh, also, another response that was most frequently submitted was Species 8472, which we knew were their kind of like, you know, ultimate baddies to the Borg in Voyager mm-hmm. was was the Undine that we've come to find out their name. You know, um, of course, the Borg designated them as 8472. Yeah, and I, I think that if somehow the Borg were able to assimilate Species 8472, you know, but I don't even want to think of that. I, I think <laughs> I think the next one that you're going to read off, Brandon, probably would be even more scary. Yeah. So the others that were most frequently submitted, there were two of them. One was the Q. So, uh, yeah, obviously snap the fingers and anything can mm-hmm. happen. And the mm-hmm. Krenum, specifically because of their time ship and being able to eradicate time and things that have happened. I guess from a philosophical point of view, I wonder if the Borg, if they some, I mean, I, I don't think, I'm almost 99.9% positive they couldn't assimilate the Q. But if they did for the sake of the argument, let's say they had that happen. I, I don't know. I wonder if now that they would be perfect, right? I mean, they mm-hmm. would have their goal. Maybe things would be better? I don't know. Well, you know, they always are about bringing order to chaos, but, you know, right. whenever the Q are involved, it's just a bunch of drama. That's true. They are a bunch of drama. <laughs> but I don't know. I think that from a realistic point of view, I think of the of the four that we have here, that Conians probably would be the most scared if the Borg had that because I could see that just having yeah. very damaging. I agree. Well, for the next Community Q, we want to know what you think would be the most punishing ship assignment a starship captain could be given. So think about those classes that would be worse to be stuck on. Obviously, we've seen some of that in lower decks maybe come Mm -hmm. to light a little bit about, you know, maybe those ships that captain doesn't want to be on. But give a thought to it and let us know and make sure to send us your answers. And you can send us your answers via email, the submission form on our website or via Twitter. Well, I've just gotten word that our ensign that's stationed astrometrics and is in charge of welcome our guests has let us know that the astronomer Dr. Robert Hurt is ready to chat with us. So Robbie, let's beam on down and have our chat with him. Awesome. I can't wait to try this new personal transporting device. Let's hope it works. If you look at starships through the history of science fiction and spaceships and how they have been rendered, I think Star Trek sits at a really interesting nexus in the idea of you know sort of fantasy design for uh, for space travel. Mm. Uh, God, I, I actually even did a podcast of this with a, a friend of mine who um, has something called uh, one called the Dark Forest, and I actually sat oh, cool. down with her and we spent over an hour just stepping through the history of how spaceship design has changed over the last 50, 60 years, and. Yeah. And Star Trek comes at a very interesting focal point because before Star Trek, you basically had two kinds of ships that you saw in fantasy and science fiction. There were the flying saucers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. which were both the aliens and the humans. You know, the C-57D mm-hmm. from Forbidden Planet uh, or, or Earth versus flying saucers, right? There was that thing. And then there were the rocket ships. Mm-hmm. There was the 
Rocket Ship right. XM. There was the uh, the Cosmostrator from first spacecraft on Venus, and and the rocket ships were very much drawn from you know the reality of space travel. It was um, the extrapolations from Werner von Braun of you know the conquest of space idea when we felt like we were going to have a much more aggressive space program than we actually had. Um, right. So you either had the rocket ship tower or you had the flying saucer, and then Gene Ronberg comes along with Star Trek. And they are placing something so far in the future. They really wanted to do an advanced technology. They know they needed to have something that let us go faster than light. So rather than just Mm -hmm. ignoring the fact that the speed of light is a speed limit and the ship will just fly and just get to place without explanation, Roddenberry knew that they had to have something, this warp drive as the the magic thing that gets you from place to place. And when the design of the Enterprise was built, it was a really interesting marriage because, you know, the saucer section is very much resonating with the idea of the flying saucer design that was so Mm -hmm. prevalent. But instead of just being its own complete thing, it was made an element of a multi- element structure where there were very specific design roles that you had the the warp nacelles and they weren't there for propulsion to push the ship they were there to fold the space around the ship they were this thing that they're located off center off the center of mass they they couldn't work as rocket thrusters because i swear to you even as like an eight-year-old kid i knew that if the enterprise just fired jets out of those nacelles it would just spin (laughs) in circles because right exactly even as an eight-year-old i understood that you have to push at the center of mass or it it's going to spiral out of control. Right. Uh, so the idea that, you know, your, your space magic technology can have a different set of rules. It doesn't need to be along the center mass. It can be out there. Uh, was interesting. And the idea that they pulled the nacelle as a, a critical role and part of the design language of so much of what went, went into Star Trek for years after that two nacelle design or sometimes four nacelle design, right. like sort of defined how their technology works. Mm-hmm. But then the other thing that's implicit in the Star Trek design is the uh, the requirement of artificial gravity. Yes. <laughs> and this is where uh, Star Trek ships and in almost, frankly, every other franchise to come after Star Trek, they're not modeled as spaceships. They're right. modeled as cruise ships. Yeah, <laughs> right. they are. They are structures with horizontal layered decks, <laughs> and the only way that works in zero gravity or in, in, in space is if you have artificial gravity pulling people arbitrarily in one particular direction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in fact, if you actually think about it, the cruise ship design is probably the stupidest way you could possibly design an actual real starship. Right. Because if you're not running warp drive, if you're just accelerating the ship and you're accelerating horizontally, all that does is every room you're in, it throws everyone to the back wall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or if you have to hit the brakes, right, you, you all get thrown against the front wall. Right? <laughs> there it, it is a really bad design. That was in the bloopers. That never made it to the screen, though. That's actually what always happened in Star Trek. <laughs> just, we just never got to see it for timing. Well, that was actually one of my favorite moments in The Expanse. Uh, uh, ever. A tiny spoiler here for people who who haven't watched it. There is a scene where a ship gets decelerated extremely rapidly through a a beyond human technology Mm -hmm. and it finally shows what would really happen to a pilot in a situation (laughs) who basically splatters into a bloodstain on the far wall. Right. I I watched that scene and I literally cheered. Yeah. I've been waiting all my life for someone to admit this is what happens when you rapidly decelerate. (laughs) Yeah, I was watching Spaceballs last night and Dark Helmet went flying into the console in the front when they went out of ludicrous speed. If you've seen Spaceballs and I was like, yeah, that I think this is actual the real science behind it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, the original Star Trek, that was all there, but no one really talked about it, you know. Yeah. And I think this is a nice thing that happened with Next Generation.
generation where uh, Rick Sternback and Mike Akuda, who were you know the uh, art department, but they were also techno geeks and they were interested in astronomy and they knew science, they knew physics, and so they made an effort to write up the technical guide that was originally distributed just to the writers to help motivate how things work. But then you know later got published and they mm. introduced terms like you know inertial dampeners, mm. which is you yes. know what you would have to have if you're standing on the surface of a ship that starts accelerating forward, you would have to have something that would kick in to cancel out the inertia of everybody inside or they would go, you know, to just keep them from splattering against the back wall. And so, uh, you know, things like inertial dampers when it comes to flying or Heisenberg compensators is a way of Mm -hmm. acknowledging, yeah, there's this whole quantum mechanics thing and we don't know how this would ever work. But if at least we say Heisenberg compensator, we acknowledge that this is something that is a fantasy technology that we're, we're pushing forward on. But it is fascinating because, you know, e- even around the same time as Star Trek, we also got 2001. And 2001 was actually focused very much on realistic yep. spaceship design. Yep. This is, again, it was attempting to really extrapolate where we might literally be in, <laughs> well, very <You're> optimistic <laughs> time scale. For, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> in the next century or so. Um, you know, so there were these two things. But in the design war... Star Trek definitely won out. Now, of mm. course, there's another really practical reason for that, I think, right? And that's, of course, we have to shoot on the ground in sets that are easy right. to build and on uh, sound stages. And so the idea of, of kind of going with the cruise ship thing had a lot of advantages. But, but if you look forward past Star Trek, almost every sci-fi franchise follows that design language that Star Trek established of, you know, the flat decks, large areas, and, and you know, where people are standing perpendicular to the direction they're traveling in. And it, Star Trek's influence on Star Wars and, mm-hmm. and like, so many other franchises, I think, is... is uh, uh, absolutely uh, undeniable. I mean, you go into the anime world, you have things like space cruiser Yamato, which was literally a retrofitted battleship turned into a spaceship. Right, <laughs> and yeah. so it, the, the cruise ship design, of course, made sense in that context of where they were going. But again, without that idea of an artificial gravity system to make that work, that doesn't make any sense at all. So, so th- there are some very big hurdles we've got to go through from science and engineering to actually get to a Star Trek starship. Yeah. But, you know, if we can clear those boundaries, then it doesn't really matter which way you orient your decks or how you lay things out so artificial gravity warp drive we need to get those checked i'm trying to remember back to an actual episode of star trek where they explained the science behind how gravity was being generated on those ships do you recall i think the closest we ever got to an explanation and i'll throw some air quotes around that is (laughs) uh in enterprise they at least made reference to gravity plating yes i do Uh, remember that you know so that was I, i think by enterprise they were very uh cognizant of the idea like we have to explain this as a technology. So the, the thing about artificial gravity in Star Trek is it's got to be cheap. It's got mm-hmm. to be ubiquitous. It has to exist on practically no power. And you have to be able to put it anywhere you need it, right? So yeah. just calling it gravity plating makes it just sound like, yep, you just lay down a layer of gravity plating and then you got gravity. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that I, I'd love to, to kind of like explore more is the fact that one common theme within Star Trek that other science fiction franchises have is the idea of ships that are generational ships for traveling to faraway systems, solar systems, you know, for X amount of reasons, you know. So, mm-hmm. like, in The Expanse, for example, there's several species in Star Trek um, and other in, in, in Star Wars that have had to use these generational ships to, you know, as the name implies, several generations because it could take hundreds of years. And I think what, what's really interesting to me is, you know, 
Is that possible? Like, how would that look for potentially us taking 300 years to get to this solar system? What would those kind of ships look like? Like, is that feasible? Would children being born in in space, you know, as we see in Expanse with the um, Belters, right? The people who live their entire life not on a planet. Like, there, it talks about that. But I'm kind of curious, like, what would that actually look like as far as the generational ships? How feasible is it? And what do we know would be the effect on humans in that scenario. That's a really interesting line of science and engineering to consider on how that would actually manifest as a real technology. And I think um, the first question that one has to answer to then really think about the uh, the design of what a ship would look like is what is your propulsion technology? Mm-hmm. And it, I think it comes down to something very simple. Do you have a propulsion that is a constant supply of thrust that just builds and builds over time? Or do you do a short burst and then float along and then burst again when you get where you're going. Because these will be two different structures that you'd have to build in order to accommodate. If you have a continuous thrust, then you follow a show more like the Expanse, where your, your right. ships are built like towers, like skyscrapers. And, you know, because as you're accelerating, you get the equivalence of gravity due to that acceleration, like, you know, feeling heavy in an elevator when it first starts accelerating, right? That's a constant thing. So you could basically build a, you know, a giant tower uh, where your ship would just be floor after floor after floor after floor stacked vertically. And it probably and it would make sense for it to be a tall and thin ship because you don't need to provide more cross-sectional area to hit things by, you know, I mean, you could make it a big wide saucer that flies with the engine at the bottom, but all you've done is you've actually made less efficient use of area to volume when you do something mm-hmm. like that. You've also exposed a large area of surface to impacts from interstellar debris and things. So, you know, the sort of the, the narrower you make it, you know, you put more, you know, a blade of shielding on the front. So yeah. <laughs> protect yourself from the dust particles moving it near the speed of light. And then you, you get that stack. But if instead you're going to coast most of the way, then you could do the colony world kind of thing, like in okay. uh, uh, like in Babylon Five, the the Babylon Five station, or in the Expanse, the uh, the Behemoth, uh, mm-hmm. the ship that's basically a cylinder, uh, a hollow cylinder that rotates along its axis, and then you get centrifugal accelerations simulating the effect of gravity, and so then you get to live around the inside of a cylinder, or, or you know layers of a cylinder, and then it's the rotation that supplies your sense of gravity the whole time, and then you could have a relatively normal you know uh, existence there just with a weird world that wraps up overhead and if from you know any physics we understand today i think those are really the two scenarios you get to play with. In either of those cases, you're going to have to be able to accommodate periods of, of uh, rotating the ship around or decelerating. Uh, mm. Even with a, uh, a ship built like a cylinder, say if you imagine putting lakes and things onto that inner surface to make it comfortable, you know, what happens when you actually have to hit the engines and start accelerating or decelerating? Right. <laughs> Everything's going to slosh to one side of that cylinder and it's yeah, going to be right. really messy. So you would still have to, I think there'd be so many engineering considerations you'd have to do. If you did want to have, say, bodies of open water, mm. Uh, you'd have to be able to lock down soil, <laughs> keep it, you know, j- just loose soil could all like fall and uh, like an avalanche cascading to one side when you accelerate and decelerate. So there would be a lot of things that we would really want inertial dampers and gravitational plating for <laughs> if we wanted to make it nicer. Yeah. If we were going to have a galaxy class with cetacean ops and these, you know, pods of dolphins, they would definitely <laughs> have to have those. They couldn't be sloshed around, right? Actually, now dolphins, th- th- they would have the easiest time of it, right? Because 
they're essentially navigating in three dimensions. They have True. every tool they need to move up, down, around. Yeah. And water is actually a really great non-compressible medium. So, you know, if you have a ship that was filled with fluid, it hardly matters whether you have this with the gravity or not. You know, if you're an aquatic species, you have so much built-in ability to navigate in three dimensions, regardless of whether there's strong gravity or not. I, they actually would be the most robust without these advanced technologies. That's actually a good point, talking about it, the whole thing being filled with water. I was just thinking of the tanks that the dolphins were in, but yeah, if their whole, you know, compartments, their whole decks were filled with it, that would make sense. And also we know like the Titan Riker ship had a lot of uh, different types of species on board and one of them could have been aquatic. So we heard that maybe there were aquatic like quarters or different sections that the aquatic races could be able to work in. So that's interesting. They'd actually have the easiest time, it sounds like. I can just see it now, like we send this generational colony ship and it's just dolphins are the ones that, you know, (laughs) is all that makes it over there and they land on the planet and we have to figure out what to do then. Probably my favorite alien starship design from Star Trek was the the Zindi Aquatic. Yeah. Uh, I loved, loved, loved that aquatic ship that we saw near the end of the third season of uh, Enterprise. And, uh, you know, that was just almost completely filled with water except for a few air pockets for visitors. So Yeah, absolutely. It's it's interesting to think because, you know, Starship design started with the original Enterprise, right? The Constitution, which they designed the outside before even thinking about the interiors or anything that came along. And then I think the franchise has gotten better by like, okay, we need to design the insides because we need to know where things go. It, it, one thing, though, I, 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 I do think that there is one aspect of the design of the Enterprise that was uh, thought through before they designed the outside. And this is the idea of the disc, the saucer section. When you look at the original sets for the Enterprise, and frankly, you know, all the Star Trek shows since mm-hmm. then, there is an incredible production advantage of having curved corridors. Oh, you're right. Because yeah, it yeah. gives you a very short horizon line, right? Mm-hmm. If your corridors are all long, straight tubes, like you have to build that whole corridor or you have to have like a matte painting at the end to fake yeah. the 3D. You know, some of the Enterprise D sets, they're actually paintings at the end of yes, the hallway yes. to make the hallway look like it goes down, which only oh. works at DS9, same way. It only works if you have the camera sitting in the exactly the right position for the perspective and the lighting just right. But by having a curved corridor, then, right, you can just go along and you can it can be like this really long thing. You just keep resetting the shot. You go back to the beginning of the corridor. You keep you know doing some cuts and you can make that feel very, very long without having to have a physically long set. And so I deeply suspect they decided we need curved corridors to make that corridor be arbitrary and then from that the design of having a saucer section was just a natural consequence of it and so i suspect that was one of the reasons they went with this hybrid saucer design but it it really solves incredible uh uh, complexities in set design and set use you know when you look to ships in star trek and you know we're getting into the 32nd century with the most recent season of discovery and we're seeing these ships that really are taking the design that we've come to know, you know, for the last several decades and really pushing the boundaries. Like, I don't think any of us would have thought about, you know, ships with detached nacelles or even holes that are separated. Um, and, you know, when you think about your work and I would, I would just love to hear your perspective because we haven't heard it explained yet why those nacelles are detached or like the new Voyager J, why it's separated. But knowing your work and knowing science and when you think about how that extrapolates 1100 years from our future, what, what how how are you explaining that to someone who asks you? I will be honest. I don't think I'm doing a very good job of explaining that because <laughs> I'm I'm still in the camp of why would you do it that way? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is a scenario where I kind of wish they had stuck a little more to 
to actually really having a set of engineering rules and laws of this is how things work and this is what we can do and what we can't do, rather than just try to throw it out so advanced that it seems like they can do anything except then they have to walk it back to tell stories. I think we're going to see some of that walking back, but at the same time, I really hope we do get to see some of the reason behind that in season four, since uh, you know it's a whole chance to go back and explain and spend some time now in the 32nd century, since that's where we're going to be. But um, you know, Robert, before we let you get back to the wonders of the universe and considering what's going on in that 32nd century, we've got five rapid fire questions for you, and we'd like to know the very first answer that comes to mind. Sound good? All right, I'm ready. Okay, and and don't feel bad if you don't provide any scientific justification behind this. We're good, you know. We, we will, you will not get uh, beamed out for plot holes or story holes. You know, we're we're, we're good here. So, well, I can provide right. references later if you need. Yes, peer reviewed, critically, you know, reference yes. will be good. Yes. Okay. All right. So first off, Robert, what is your favorite ship? Obviously, I'm going to say the Enterprise A, because come on, we all just adore that ship. But I will give you my second favorite ship is the Defiant. That is a wonderful choice. And I'm not biased. Okay, Robert, favorite series? I'll go with the original series because I'm that old. It was my trek. (laughs) And favorite captain? I will go with Picard because while TOS is my favorite trek, I would much rather serve under Picard than Kirk. I think I would have a much better chance of surviving. Especially if you're in a red shirt. Probably that is true. Um, if you were headed into Starfleet Academy and had to pick one of the three career tracks, which one would it be? Command, science, or engineering? Well, I think it's kind of obvious. I would have to go with the blue shirt, even though my favorite captain seems to think that wearing a blue shirt means living a life that isn't even worth living. Um, an episode that I've, I've never, never gotten past. And finally, what is the one part of the Trek universe you think that just doesn't land quite right on the money science-wise, like actual science-wise. Maybe just because we were talking about it, but I will have to say detached nacelles and detached fuselages. I had a feeling you'd say that after the discussion we just had. Well, Robert, thank you so much for that. And thanks for joining us today. Always great to talk real science and to chat with you about Trek. Uh, While you get back to those wonders of the universe, Robbie and I are going to move into this week's All Hands on Deck segment. For this week's drill, we return to an oldie but goodie, which is a Trek spin on the shag, marry, or kill game that a lot of us played when we were kids. Now, since this is ship talking, we gave the community access to three ships, and we asked which they would joyride, which one they would command, and which one they would self-destruct. The three ships were the Klingon Bird of Prey, the Romulan Dideradix, and the Jem'Hadar attack ship. So for this one, we normally share like, oh, which one was the most commanded? Which Mm -hmm. one was the least requested to self-destruct? But there was actually a combination that was actually, I would say, about 85% of the submissions. A lot of you all came up with the same combination, and that was to joyride the Klingon Bird of Prey, command the Dideradex, and to self-destruct the Jem'Hadar attack ship. Brandon, okay. I know I've been gone for a while on my shore leave. Uh, I have to say, though, community, I agree with you on one of these. And to <laughs> me, first of all, self-destructing the Jem'Hadar attack ship, I have a feeling the second the Vorta says this ship is self-destructing, they probably just eject everybody into space. You know, I probably, it just it's just instantaneous because they're just like, what's an escape pod? Who knows right, what an escape pod is right. for, that sh- for that ship? So no, like, oh my God, like that would be like the worst possible ship that you would want to self-destruct. Now, I do agree, I think, 
Commanding the Dideradex, whoa, how fun. It cloaks. The thing is a walking tank. And yes, yeah. and this is not just because Alex paid me to say this, <laughs> but I have to say that would probably be the most fun ship to do a lot of stuff with. And, and oh my goodness, I can only imagine. Plus, I mean, those gaps in the ship, how cool is that? I think it might have just been a case of coming up with one ship to throw in that self-destruct slot. I could mm-hmm. see why joyriding the Bird of Prey might be fun. I mean, it's one mm-hmm. of those ships where maybe you wouldn't want to be stuck on it. It's not that comfortable. Right. It's very, mm-hmm. you know, grungy. But it might be kind of cool to go out and, you know, flap your wings around and right. uh, and use the cloak and, and do some destruction but there is something i think very commanding about the dideradex mm-hmm. right it's got that tactical prowess yes. it is like a tank you just feel strong behind it whereas maybe the bird of prey not so much and i think maybe just everyone doesn't know too much about the Jem'Hadar attack ship or mm-hmm. you know we're just like well i've got to put that somewhere so i'm gonna put it there the big purple bug yeah it's it's that bug ship but um it was interesting because for those that didn't pick that combination that community member was actually more likely to want to joyride the attack ship um, and and then they were kind of split between whether they'd self-destruct or command the Dideradex or the Bird of Prey. And I think also, right, one of the most interesting things about the Jem'Hadar attack ship, and it kind of correlates, I mean, you would never really think to say that the Bird of Prey would be more comfortable than something, right? Just mm-hmm. like you mentioned. But when you look at the Jem'Hadar attack ship, I mean, there's no chairs, there's no beds, there's <laughs> no creature comfort. You know, there's only there's no seats. There's no seats. Yeah. There's only two people in the entire or two individuals, I should say, who have any ability to see the outside. So, I mean, everything about that ship, I'm like, look, all three of those ships are made for, you know, military capabilities. But the Jem'Hadar attack ship, I mean, whew, they did not think about the ergonomics of it you know, <laughs> when they designed that ship. But to your point earlier, Brandon, about the Klingon Bird of Prey, at least, you know, that there'll be fresh gach. That's right. And some blood wine. I would definitely take a glass of that right now. Mm. Uh, well, if you want to participate in the weekly drill, they get posted on Twitter towards the end of each week, and we'd love to see your participation. Well, Brandon, much like Quark tries to get everybody out of those hollow suites a little <laughs> bit before the time is up, I feel like I can't believe that our episode is already almost over. Yeah. So next week, we are going to have two awesome guests. We're going to have Thomas Maroney, who's been on our show in the past, and Jeremy Randall. They both work within the Trek franchise, and our discussion will surround the narrative and lore of ships. Yeah, so they currently both work on Star Trek Online, but Thomas's work actually extends beyond that. We've seen him writing lore for Eagle Moss and some of their models and the magazines they put out. But we're going to spend some time talking to them about the lore of ships, how they get written into stories, them as characters, why certain ships get selected for certain episodes and things like that. It should be an interesting discussion going back towards the narrative of ships themselves. So I'm really looking forward to it. There's very few things that Trek fans agree with, but one thing we do all agree is that we do have a bit of an emotional attachment to our favorite ships, to ships we enjoy, or the ships we do not like, um, or features we do not like. And I think that having uh, Jeremy and Thomas on will be awesome because we're going to be able to uh, learn some more about our beloved ships. So I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Everybody, don't forget, hailing frequencies are always open. Head to shiptalkingpod.com to transmit a message via the submission form. And while you're out there, check out our awesome and fun merch. Yeah. When I was uh, on the beaches of Ryza, it was really fun to see people sporting our, uh, you know, <laughs> our, our ship talking pod speedos and bathing suits. I have to say <laughs> it was it was very flattering. So thank you, everybody. <laughs> Another great way to support us is to become a patron of our Patreon 
page and in exchange for your support we give you some really cool rewards which are just about to be revamped so do check out the blog there and of course your support allows us to make the show happen all of it goes back into our production costs that accrue each month so we really appreciate it and also as a friendly reminder our email address is hello at shiptalkingpod.com we actually read every email and respond and we love hearing from you and for all of you who have ideas for the show feedback anything you want to like throw at us we love it and we will definitely use it in a show or an episode we do and if you don't want to send us an old-fashioned email and you're on the twitterverse you can send us a tweet to at ship talking pod it's also a great place to engage with other fans of the show and to talk a bit of ship in between episodes with your fellow community members our community manager james also posts daily ship facts so it's a great way to learn about the ships of the franchise and you know you might hear some things that you haven't known before so it's a it's it's a lot of fun. I know for myself, Brandon, I have learned so much about Star Trek, the ships, the lore, the history behind Star Trek from the show, from our guests, and from, of course, from our wonderful team. So I encourage everybody to also take advantage of that if you just want to keep broadening your horizons about Star Trek. Yeah, absolutely. And the best way to support us is to tell your Trekkie and Trekker friends about the show. They can find us by searching Ship Talking Pod wherever they get their podcast, or just send them to our website for a direct link. Speaking about Twitter and James who posts those ship facts, thanks James for all you do as our community manager, and a big thank you to George, our audio engineer, who does all the behind the scenes work on our production, and you might have heard Robbie mention, uh, thank you George, instead of sorry George, but while we're recording we always go SG for sorry George, so he knows that we're sorry for something he has to edit. And thank you to all of our listeners, the community, and the supporters on Patreon. We're very appreciative of all of you making this a fun experience we really are and speaking of fun experience looking forward to the next one until the next pod stay safe and well we'll see you then and make it slippy (laughs) i was waiting for that to make a return make it slippy see you later bye everybody So, what do you call an admiral who's just being really negative about everything? You call him a subtract moral. <laughs> <laughs>